What does it mean to live in the nation of Australia? Is it important that we know our history in order to understand our present and shape our future? Does Australia have a national identity that we can all acknowledge and own? And do we need one? These are just some of the questions that we discuss on the podcast today. I'm Millie Rooney, and I'm joined by two extraordinary thinkers and observers of Australian life and history, Julianne Schultz and Frank Bongiorno. Julianne Schultz is currently the chair of The Conversation and was the publisher and founding editor of The Griffith Review. She's recognised as a national leader and advocate on matters related to media and culture. And her recent book, The Idea of Australia, A Search for the Soul of the Nation, really showcases her deep understanding of who we are as a country. And she beautifully weaves in the personal, the political and the historical into this gorgeous book. Frank Bongiorno is a professor of history at the Australian National University and the president of the Australian Historical Association. His recent book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, is a detailed and amazingly entertaining insight into our national moments of political renewal and change. So join me for this wonderful conversation with two people who are passionate about understanding our potential as a nation, who get the importance of grappling with the realities of our past, and who share really key insights, I think, into where we go next. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with two amazing scholars and public commentators, Emeritus Professor Julianne Schultz and Professor Frank Bongiorno. So Julianne's book, The Idea of Australia, The Search for the Soul of a Nation, actually had me cheering in the first chapter as she acknowledges in the first sentence that Australia is an oddly amorphous idea. And I really love the way that Julianne weaves through it her own relationship to time and space and place. Um, And then Frank's book, Dreamers and Schemers, A Political History of Australia, is more a history from a distance, but with some very lovely, funny, quirky stories to sort of make it really human and real, um, helping us to understand the inside and outside forces shaping Australian politics and identity. So Julian and Frank, I'm really happy to have you here today. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So I've been really looking forward to this chat for a couple of reasons, and not least of which I've been diving into both of your books and trying to think about, you know, where we've come from as a country, where we are and where we might go. Um, And you both draw on that personal history and then history, um, you know, Frank, in your case, there's a lot of sort of academic research into that history, or both of you have. Um, And I'm interested from both a personal perspectives and more broadly, like why history? Why is it important to, to both of you that we have an understanding of history and particularly an understanding of Australian history? Um, Julianne, I might chuck to you first. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Millie, and it's wonderful to be able to have this chat with you and, and Frank. It's, it's interesting to have two books that sort of are covering similar sorts of territory but in, 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 in very complementary but different sort of ways um, at the same time. Um, look, why history? I mean, I think that um, what what I've done in my book is, is I've tried to understand why Australia is the way it is at the moment, and you can't do that without knowing your past. Um, and so my um, interest in that was very much like it would be 
if you're trying to figure out your family history. But if you don't know where you've come from and where your background is and who your people are and so on, and where the contests have been in the past, it's very difficult to make sense of where you are now. And I think that that's, um, that was very much my quest because one of the, you know, it's obvious that Australians don't know a lot about their history, you know, that's a given. Um, but I think that in a country which has such a large immigrant population and has had for such a long time, that trying to synthesise what's gone on in the past to create where we are now has an extra urgency that it may not in a society which is much more stable and where, you know, there hasn't been, you know, like half the population has, you know, was born overseas or has a family member born overseas. So that's really a profound um, change in the nature of the community. And if people don't know what's gone on before, everyone's sort of trying to reinvent themselves. So that was a big part of my... Um, my motivation in trying to weave some of the history through that bigger question of, you know, what is a contemporary idea of Australia? Mm, and I, I thought um, you make a point in the book about for many people coming to Australia, crossing the globe to get here is a gruelling and traumatic journey full of bureaucratic hurdles um, and, you know, where, whenever that has happened in time and that that dents the curiosity about what comes before and, and that what happens when people arrive in a country that sort of works most of the time, we often forget or shy away from understanding that history. Yeah. yeah. Look, I think that um, partly that's a natural human survival technique. You know, you've just got to get on with your life and you do that as best you can. But, but because we don't have a lot of those prompts around us all the time, it's, you know, we don't have the sort of in most places, there aren't the plaques, there aren't the signs, there aren't the statues, there aren't the sort of physical embodiments of the past. So it's not easy for people to say, oh, I wonder what happened there before. Um, and I think that that makes it more urgent. The other thing, uh, and, and my book is much more polemical than, than Frank's. I mean, the other thing that I'm looking, I'm just, I was sort of trying to trace the fault lines back. And obviously one of the big fault lines, and there are several, um, is the relationship with First Nations people. and that's obviously uppermost in a lot of people's minds at the moment. It'll be the subject of the referendum next year. Um, and I think that trying to integrate a, you know, a perspective on that has always been here um, when it's not, there's not a lot of prompts around us in the streets um, is really an important thing. It's always, you know, it's, you know, it's something which you need to help people to get to because they don't actually get there by themselves. So that's a lovely segue actually to what I wanted to ask you, Frank, is that I feel like a lot of your book for me was about revealing the layers uh, in our history and giving some kind of signposts to where we might have come from. You know, Julianne, you're talking about we, we can't see our history so visibly in the landscape. And for me, Frank, you were painting a picture of, of how our politics and our culture was shaped by different forces. Um, so I'm asking the same question to you really, like why history and why is it important to you? Yeah, thanks, Millie. Well, it's important to me, I think, for the same kinds of reasons um, that Julianne was talking about. Um, I mean, my histories always do come out of the present, uh, and I think that's probably true of history generally, both the questions that we pose and, and the answers that we formulate um, in an attempt to, to kind of come to grips with them. And I'm very struck in the case of my own book by the impact that the pandemic has had on my understanding of Australian society and politics and culture. I mean, the book was really supposed to be delivered before the pandemic or perhaps early in the pandemic. And uh, as it turned out, it was a kind of pandemic project to, to write much of it. And, you know, I got a very different sense of 
the nature of Australian politics from just observing um, a, a society under considerable stress in, in the last few years. Um, I'd once been very sceptical, for instance, of this idea of Australia having a notably utilitarian political culture, one that where people uh, are less inclined to um, appeal to abstract rights and more inclined to basically just look to government um, to make judgments about the kind of balance between individual rights and collective good. And I think we saw during the pandemic um, a, a, a real acceptance, I think, by the, the, the overwhelming majority of people that, that government did have a, a critical role in, in looking after them. And, you know, you can trace that kind of ethic, that kind of approach right back to the very earliest history of settler Australia, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I, in a lot of ways, I, I look to the past to explain aspects of the present. Um, that doesn't mean that um, you know, I'm only interested in those aspects of the past that link in the obvious ways to the present. I'm not. I'm also interested in recovering aspects of the past that are incredibly different from our own circumstances. I think there is something like the impact of religious sectarianism in Australian history, which is also a theme um, of Julianne's book, something that, that Julianne talks about is that role of religion. And it's there in, in my uh, account of Australian politics as well. Um, I think a, a lot of those kinds of impulses are probably less evident in our politics today, or they play a different kind of role in our politics now than, you know, in the 19th century or even as recently as the 1950s and 60s. But I think that sort of thing uh, is also very important. Historians shouldn't just be kind of um, constrained by what's happening in the present when they interpret when they turn to, to an interpretation of the past. Millie, it's interesting because I, like Frank, did a lot of this writing or did all my writing during COVID. Um, I mean, I had in mind to do this book for quite some time, but what I what struck me very early on in the, in the COVID experience was that it provided a you know what I describe as a, as a COVID X-ray that it provided a way of seeing both the strengths and the weaknesses of a society. You know, in the same way you should take an X-ray, you know, and a and a skilled um, doctor would be able to interpret that, you know, looking for both underlying faults, you know, weaknesses and 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 persistent strengths. And so my, um, in in many ways, the the starting point for that sort of critical examination of the of the impact of COVID came when the Prime Minister at the time, Scott Morrison, talked about, you know, when he reluctant, you know, Australia had been a bit ahead of the curve in terms of. Um, of closing borders and so on, and, and certainly in bringing back Chinese Australians from Wuhan. Um, you know, that was the sort of first big intervention that happened. Um, and it was interesting because the response was to send those people to Christmas Island, you know, as though they were, you know, um, illegal asylum seekers rather than put them in a city hotel close to a hospital because they might have been really ill, you know. So it was a four-hour flight to get them from Christmas Island to Perth if, they, if somebody was seriously ill. And that was sort of, oh, that was interesting. That stuck in my, in my mind as an example of the way those policies of racial exclusion and so on have, have such a long history in, in, our, in, our, in our nation. Um, but then when the Prime Minister did, eventually did his, you've got to go home and close the doors and, you know, not go out and we will give you some money. And he did this whole riff about that being fair, that being the Australian way and so on. And then within a week, he's coming back and saying, well, it's not quite everybody and there's some people who are going to be excluded and we can't really. And, and so it sort of, to me, really encapsulated one of those sort of founding ideas, you know, 
that on the one hand, we talk about fairness a lot, but when you dig down into it, it's actually a very, um, you know, it's a very partial sort of fairness that's just, you know, that's available to some and not to others. So in many ways for me, that was one of the triggers for trying to find the fault lines, um, of which there were quite a number, you know, that became very apparent during that COVID period. But it also was clear, and I think um, Frank's point about, you know, what the government should do. I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> that there is a, a deep sense in Australian society <clears throat> of what I describe as the government order. You know, the government ought to do whatever it is that you need to have done. And in this case, the government ought to, and the government sort of did for a while, you know, and, and so people sort of welcomed that, but, then, you know, then it started to fray. Um, so, um, like Frank, I mean, I think that there was a real, there was a really important sort of diagnostic moment that happened through that that period. And, you know, there were some really good things that happened. You know, suddenly we found we didn't need to have homeless people sitting on the streets. It was possible to find places for them to live. But on the other hand, you know, people of, um, you know, poor, you know, people of recently, you know, the, the closing down of those um, tower blocks in, you know, Melbourne, you know, really spoke to, you know, a, poli- you know, a, a deep standing policy of, you know, if you don't speak English and don't actually fit in, well, we're going to, you know, somehow or other you get treated differently. <laughs> One of the things I think you say in your book is around belonging kind of became privatised and access was more likely to be determined by wealth than by rights. And to me, that that was a really great phrase to think about and, and something that Australia remade. We started thinking about this around the same time in the pandemic of noticing that people were, you know, the pandemic was the x-ray, like you said, and we got to see a little bit more about how things worked. Is it health over business? Are these things in competition? And it, it's... It's got me thinking, I've been trying to grapple with this for a while about what is the role of a national story and a national identity that acknowledges the past and pulls us into the future to, in a way we want to be. And, Frank, I was laughing in your book um, when you write about the Centenary of Federation in 2001. I think you say um, the centenary did not arouse great excitement. Um, and you talk about that television advertisement. And I remember seeing this on the bus as well. So I was in year 12 at this time and I'm going on the bus and seeing those signs about, you know, who was the first prime minister of Australia and that kid asking like, dad, who was it? Not being able to answer. I will forever be able to tell you it was Edmund Barton. But I mean, that was not particularly exciting. And then you say, you know, that ad was there. So as if by recalling the name of Edmund Barton, it would unleash some previously untapped source of civic virtue. And you talk about kind of how we missed that, you know, there was a moment that could have been used for a story to, or to weave in many stories that really flopped. <laughs> um, and then you talk, you go on to talk about, you know, the 2000 Sydney Olympics actually generated a huge blaze of enthusiasm for identity. You know, it, it's much more kind of present in the moment. And I, I'm really interested in both your perspectives on is a national, a shared national story helpful? Is it possible? What would it look like? What would it take to get us there? I know they're really big questions. Maybe just come in at a chunk of that. Um, but maybe start with you, Frank, given the Edmund Barton inspiration there. <laughs> it can inspire us this way, if not on the bus. <laughs> It was a kind of naive idea, wasn't it? But, you know, as if simply knowing a, a fact like that would, you know, it was somehow virtuous. Uh, and obviously, there was a larger case being made there, I suppose, that we should be more aware of and conscious of our political history. And I make the point early in my book that, that Australians have tended to look 
um, I think, outside politics for their heroes. You know, they've, they've tended to look to or their anti-heroes sometimes, you know, figures like, um, you know, a, a Ned Kelly, I guess, or, a, you know, even in the military sphere, a, a John Monash. These are, are figures that we tend to, um, you know, to elevate uh, that that we know less about. Um, you know, perhaps let's get away from Edmund Barton for a moment, but a figure as significant as, say, Alfred Deakin uh, or, or Vida Goldstone, um, you know, the, 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 yeah, we know more about, um, these figures perhaps than, than we once did. Uh, but that said, uh, that they still, I think, um, are rather marginal to the ways in which we tell our national stories uh, colloquially, you know, the way we do it within kind of popular culture and mass culture. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that's one of the kinds of things I've tried to do in the book is to say that there is this story here. It's not an entirely celebratory story by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's it's a, a story that has many, many dark sides, but which, you know, I think um, is worth telling. It's important that we know because we get very little sense of the possibilities of our current politics unless um, we are aware, I think, of of, of the, the ways in which our political culture has evolved and developed over a longer period of time. And sorry, Julianne, before you go, I'll just tip all the listeners, because I suspect many of them actually won't know the significance of Deakin or Goldstein. I will put some links to them in the show notes. Okay. Um, I think that, um, I mean, what I did in my book was, I mean, I talk, I write a little bit about the sort of colonial period, um, pre-Federation, um, but I don't, and Frank writes fantastically about the sort of early colonial politics, you know, um, really through you know, encapsulates, you know, a lot of the sort of tensions and debates. Um, I mean, I write a little bit about it, but I really, um, my focus is really on the nation. And so the nation is created in 1901. Well, actually, the nation was created six months earlier when it, when the act that was the Australian Constitution passed the British Parliament and, and Queen Victoria signed it into being. Um, and I think it's very clear that we have never told those Federation stories or made them important, and to even to understand the contest that was around, you know, different points of view. I mean, there were people who had quite radical ideas about what the constitution should be, what the nation should be. Should it be republican? Should it be a much more localised sort of politics? Should there be 17 states, not six? You know, there was a really a, a pretty strong debate, and it it was initially captured at, at a sort of fairly high level, but it permeated down, and we now in the 21st century really have little way of tapping into any of that except that some of the currents that were around in those debates still come back you know should we be a republic should there be a bill of rights should there be a more localized politics should there be more states you know there's a bunch of things that um should we recognize first nations people you know uh, there's a whole bunch of things that that were debated and were up for grabs at that time and were not you know, we're not taken seriously. I mean, partly because, you know, the, when the when the whiskery blokes retreated to the Lucinda to do their first draft, you know, the, the more radical ideas that were around at the time didn't get a presence there. And so they just, you know, they sat as a sort of subterranean thing. But people didn't vote. You know, the, the resistance to Federation was quite strong. You know, people weren't convinced by it. Um, so I think that um, in terms of talking about the nation, which is what I do, I'm I'm interested in that 1900, 1901 sort of starting point, you know, knowing that there's a rich thing that's come before it, because that's the point at which the decision was made about this society as an integrated whole. 
Now, you know, people have been travelling all around the world to watch Hamilton, you know, paying vast amounts of money to see, you know, a debate that happened in the American constitution formation. You know, we've got some pretty wacky characters. I mean, Frank writes very nicely about Deacon and, and, and so on. But there's a bunch of others. You know, we have Kingston having duels. We have the women who are really furious about the nature of the politics, you know, the decision to, you know, it's a lot of stuff that was going on that we've never really had access to. I think in many ways you talk about the bus and the advert for the Centenary of Federation. I mean, most strikingly, the first event that happened to celebrate the Federation actually happened in London. So all of us were great and the good, but not all of them because Keating and a couple of other, you know, sort of former prime ministers were key to go, went to London to mark the beginning of the celebration of the Federation of Australia. Now, that in itself speaks very loudly about a nation which still hasn't quite settled in a, on an idea of itself um, that is um, something more than an offshoot of a, of a British empire. And, I mean, the thing, one of the things in, in the, during the pandemic period that struck me so strongly about that was that it's still alive in certain politics. You know, so you saw um, the former prime minister go to a G8 or 12 or 16 or whatever G, whichever G it was, in in um, in Cornwall and snuck off. He didn't have it in his Australian diary, but he had it in in you know became apparent because it was reported locally. Went to the church where his forebears, who'd been on the first or second fleet, whichever it was, um, had come from, looking for a registration of their birth and you know in the graveyard of you know this uh, of this of this church, which was reported by the local provincial English press and eventually made its way back here. It, at which Morrison wrote in the church book, it's nice to be home. I mean, his forebears had come out, you know, like in 18, sorry, 1780, whatever it was, um, and yet here he was. And then when um, the former trade minister, Dan Tian, started signing off on the free trader deal with the UK, he, he, he said, oh, this is writing a historic wrong of Britain joining the EU and doing Australia out of its, you know, its trading partners. I mean, it was sort of, amazing to me that you would have political leaders of, a, you know, a sort of independent nation at the bottom of the, the globe still genuflecting in, in a way that wouldn't have been inappropriate amongst the, uh, you know, the, the people that Frank documents in the sort of colonial period. Um, so because we don't know the stories well enough, we don't know the debates that went on, we don't know what the alternatives might have been. And so I think that the two books in a way I mean, I, I posit what a what a Hamilton would look like if you had the sort of Australian cast in it, you know, and it'd be pretty weird. <laughs> um, but um, it seems to me that if we don't have some sort of access point to those discussions, we can't know what the tensions were, and and you can't if you don't know the past, you can't imagine the future. Um, on the, the nation question, because obviously for people with a sort of progressive politics, you know, the whole idea of the nation is one which is pretty fraught because we've seen the way that national nationalism is used to engender pretty ghastly politics. Um, I'm quite interested, I'm, I'm nervous that what's, or, or concerned, not nervous, it concerns me that in the caution that we rightly have about that nationalistic sort of fervour, that the progressive side of politics has given up too much. And, and so what you end up with is a sort of knee-jerk sort of xenophobia, a knee-jerk retreat back, an inward-looking sort of um, sense of the society. And I'm quite, I mean, I say, you know, people all come from somewhere and they find their roots somewhere. And you need to actually understand that. Now, my conception of the nation is one which 
to borrow the Timothy Gart Nash stuff on on national identity is multi layered. It's inclusive. It's it it's able to allow shades and different layers in it. It's not reduced down to a simple marketing Aussie 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 oi 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 type idea of what the country is. And if you've got that, if you've got that expansive idea of what the nation might be, there's space for everybody. And that's that's what you know your remakers and people need to be seems to me without telling them what to do but need to be engaged with it's it's an it's a very different sort of inclusive idea of what national identity might mean which is unique and distinctive but it's not um you know but it's open you know that's the key thing um and you know we have the great enormous luxury of you know an ancient history of you know tens and tens and tens of thousands of years and the extraordinary luxury in a global sense of being a nation that is a continent. If you can't actually work out something which is a bad identity of a nation that's a continent and has one of the oldest continuous human civilizations in the world, you know, you're not paying attention. I can see you nodding there, Frank. Do you want to add anything at this point? Yeah. Um, no, I think um, it's a, a really great point about the sort of progressive iteration of, of um, nationalism and nationhood. Um, I, I'm also struck, though, by the ways in which um, you know, a, a kind of new political geography, I think, um, is also a part of kind of being a, 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 a self-aware um, Australian citizen in the present. And by that I mean that um, we are, I think, increasingly conscious of the diverse, the internal diversity of the country in terms of that Indigenous history, that First Nations history. Um, you know, that's partly come, I think, through... The, the practice of acknowledgement of country. Um, and so, um, you know, we're, we're all, I think, much more aware of, of uh, that, that all of the country that, that, that we, we live on, that we work on, has a multi-layered history. Uh, it has a history in deep time, that it's not simply a, a post-1788 history. Um, I think we're also, again, with the pandemic, more aware of the ways in which regions and states and territories also matter in quite striking ways. Borders that had been, for most people, soft borders for a very long time suddenly became hard borders. So I think our our sense of the relationship between smaller and larger kind of iterations of identity and, and belonging has shifted, and it's shifting quite rapidly, actually. Um, you know, we I suppose back in the 1980s and 90s, you know, we talk a lot about globalisation and the ways in which globalisation was shifting our sense of where um, you know we all sat in the world, our sense of selfhood, our sense of of what a nation was. Um, but I think we've moved on a long way from that, actually. Um, and and now some of the really pressing questions are are about um, you know really that that relationship between our more limited or our more localized senses of belonging and connectedness. And those larger, often more abstract understandings of, of belonging that attach to the idea of, of Australia or that idea of nationhood that's very much the, the subject of Julianne's work. And, and I I suppose in my own, and, and, and again, yes, my own approach to this has been very shaped by the developments, I think, of the last few years with the, the, the pandemic. Um, but I think, yeah, look, more, more generally, um, things like, um, subnational governments, state governments have just become much more prominent and important in our lives over the last few decades. They are able to do more 
than 20 or 30 years ago when they looked like they were kind of degenerating into a municipal status and the only game in town was a kind of national one. Um, I think, you know, um, the situation we're living in now is actually quite a quite different one. And when we're thinking about the progressive possibilities of the moment, we actually have to look, I think, beyond national institutions and national government. We actually also need to look much more locally. We need to look to, to, to um, local government, to state government, to territory government, um, and to a whole range, I guess, of institutions that, that actually aren't really national ones, that don't, don't exist in that, that kind of space that we think of as, as the national or the Australian. And, and that's a to me, is a really big change in my own lifetime, which extends really over about half a century. That's, I mean, you're so right, Frank. I mean, one of the things that um, I mean, became very clear, as you say, during COVID, that, you know, people were engaging locally. I mean, partly because the barriers were put up and they couldn't go beyond. I mean, you in Tasmania, I mean, you couldn't leave the island, you know, for months and months and months on end, I mean, years. <laughs> people were very trapped, you know, not since convict days and people felt so trapped on Tasmania, beautiful though it is. Um, and, you know, that has, a, you know, that messes with your head a bit. You know? um, but one of the things that I thought was really striking during the pandemic was was obviously that so this local engagement you had to do. So, you know, the little Facebook groups, I mean, the newspapers and little Facebook groups and other ways that people were connecting locally. They happened to walk their neighbourhoods rather than driving through it to get to work somewhere else. And in many ways, I think the independence campaigns during the election campaign grew out of that sort of sense of really engagement. People had been forced to connect locally in a, in, in a way that they hadn't, you know, you wouldn't normally have to in, in your day-to-day life, you know, where you'd much more mobile. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, though, is, is that the whole um, Uluru process um, you know, has itself forced a focus on the local. Now, you know, we don't know what shape the truth-telling thing is going to take and how that's going to evolve. And a lot of that will happen at the very top-down level, you know, of legislation and so on. But a lot of it will happen locally. There will be a lot of stories told in every street and city and, and neighbourhood in the country which actually have a local story of engagement. And that forces a degree of thinking about where you are you know, um, in a way that we haven't done previously. You know, you talk about the acknowledgement to countries, and I, I use this as one of my examples of change. You know, um, you know, I have this sort of um, 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 this um, general sense that you know, change in Linda Colley's words takes three score years and ten, but sometimes it gets speeded up. And you know, the crucial thing in 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 the acknowledgement to country process is the Marbo judgment. You know, which actually said. You know, terra nullis didn't exist. There was prior settlement. Now, at that time, even people who were quite involved in Aboriginal politics, you know, you'd have a sort of general, you know, sort of tag, oh, this is Murray and this is Koori and, you know, but very sort of generic sort of territory. It's not until the mid-90s that David Horton and IATSAS produced the first map, you know, with all the little, you know, language-based groups, you know, which was using anthropological and some older information to create that map, which took off. You know, all of a sudden, I don't live in, you know, some Koori territory. I live in Bundjalung country, and that means this, and these are the parameters, and this is the, you know, you started to get that granularity happening. Um, and so... That process of learning about the local, um, I mean, I describe it as, as the country tearing off the veils and re- revealing more. Um, and as you reveal more, you know, there's a lot of bad, there's a lot of good, but there's a, there is a deep history. Um, and so that process of thinking about the local quite differently, I think, got some impetus in the in the politics this year in the election. Um, um, 
and and you're starting to see it in all sorts of ways with you know little groups of people springing up and doing things you see government trying to respond as well to local initiatives that are being led by community groups rather than we have a plan and we this plan involves removing you know removing your children or it involves you know putting a freeway through, you know, whatever it is, you know, the very top-down sort of politics that we've known since the, you know, for, for, you know basically forever. Um, so I think that, that that dynamic is really, it's really fluid and that's what's going to change. And it's going to be very interesting to see how well the public service, politicians and others are able to respond to it because the big organising principles that we've had, the big institutions like the mass media, political parties, churches, trade unions, those big groups have lost their purchase. And so the organising devices are necessarily going to come, you know, organically. Hey, just wanted to say that if this conversation has got you thinking, Well, we would really like to hear from you. So you can get in touch with us directly via email podcast at australiaremade.org. You can also give us a call and the details for that are in your show notes. I want to give a huge shout out to everyone who takes a minute to spread the word about this podcast or to write a review. It means the world to us. We are a small, not-for-profit, independent team building a community of people who want a kinder, smarter, more hopeful and solutions focused politics. So if that sounds like your jam, please go to the website australiaremade.org and sign up to get updates and stay in the loop and check us out. Thanks. Back to the show. strikes me as useful is, is what you're saying there about the local and thinking about you know you're talking Julianne about an Australian Hamilton and you know my brother who shares my values but has very different way of engaging with politics when I told him about it, I was like yeah it's, it's really amazing musical you should go and see it you know it's all about the kind of detailed bureaucracy behind you know the financial systems in the US or whatever um, and he was like, um, I don't think so, really. Like, that sounds terrible. Anyway, he saw it recently and was obviously blown away. Um, and I love the idea of, you know, something, you know, the arts as that storytelling. Obviously, that's its role. And I can see how there could be real maybe fear or pushback against doing something like that here because it, how do we take pride in a federation story when we're only just starting to reveal you know the the whole legacy and ongoing colonization i think it's a real tension point for people where it's it's and it's it's personal and it's cultural and it's social you know how do we how do we take pride in an identity where we're feeling guilty or or blamed you know i think there's different or shame shamed is the right word yeah Less guilt and shame because people, you know, won't hear. I think, look, that's why I think Uluru is so important. You know, that's why I think that whole process is so crucial because it sort of addresses a moral flaw which is at the core of the nation. So if we're able to recognise and begin to provide structures and, you know, ways of engaging in a genuine 
exchange and dialogue with First Nations people. Now, 1803, Jeremy Bentham says the failure to not have a treaty um, on settlement here will be an incurable flaw indelible flaw that will last forever. Well, you know, here we are, 2022, it's still there. Um, so my strong sense is that is that getting that sorted, you know, is absolutely the essential precondition. And once you start to fix that, you know, there's a whole lot of things that become possible because that has been intractable. That has been an incurable flaw. Um, and perhaps that point about the local, you know, we can it's easier at the local to engage with both the horror and the pride, you know, I think rather than on that, that national, national level. I think there's also been, um, I mean, thinking about where are the, the uplifting stories, if you like, that could be told in the context of this broader sense of tragedy, dispossession, marginalisation. I mean, there have been a number of political histories, if you like, that we have I think as a community rediscovered or perhaps discovered for the first time, at least uh, amongst the settler society uh, in in the last generation, I think of the growing awareness of the activism of William Cooper, for instance, you know, reflected in the change of uh, uh, an an electorate's name. It was Batman, wasn't it? Batman became Cooper in in, uh, Melbourne in federal politics. And you know, Cooper's agitation in the 1930s, his petition to the king, his, uh, uh, you know, attempts to get political representation for uh, Aboriginal people in the federal parliament. Um, uh, there's much more awareness of that. We've had a recent biography of Cooper. Um, you know, th- this is now being taught to, to uh, people who are learning Australian history in a way that was absolutely unknown when I did this in the 1980s or even going back to primary school in the 70s. Um, I think of William um, Barak, you know, and, and, and the, the, the really quite heroic struggle of um, the settlers at Corrandirk in Victoria to to keep their land in the face of attempts by settlers to take it for farming and for building railways in the 1870s and 1880s. And again, you know, perhaps we don't know as much about these characters as 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 we do about um, you know the Robert Menzies and Bob Hawkes and all the rest. Um, but but they are stories that are gradually, I think, being excavated. Um, they're making their way into curriculum. Uh, they're producing all sorts of different kinds of, um, or leading to all sorts of different kinds of cultural production, not just histories, but also sometimes dramatic presentations and so on. Um, so I think that there there is um, a, a kind of, if you like, a bending back to. to to re-examine um, some of the, the the ways in which we think about our our political history, and we're seeing much more nuance, much more complexity. We're finding spaces in which um, Indigenous people were able to to a- adapt uh, their culture um, to the opportunities offered by self-government, um, even within a system that was designed really to marginalise them, a system designed to actually dispossess them of their land. And so, you know, I think that, that you know, there is, a again, a, that sense of multilayering, um, which I think was, I, I always think of that as a post-Marbo history. I think that that, you know, when I think of what, what is the effect on, on Marbo in terms of how we deal with how, our history, how we grapple with, with our history, I, I think of Marbo as, as really legitimising really a kind of multi-layered sense of our history, a a realisation that every time we tell a story about settler Australia, that there is is another story about the other side of the frontier, as Henry Reynolds called it, that that also 
needs to be excavated, needs to be told. And, and, and that for me is a, a really powerful kind of modern sensibility. And I, I think it's, it's actually much more embedded now in our culture than many of us credit. Um, you know, when, when I, whether I, I, I hear stories of people, of people making the claim that, um, you know, we don't know this history or, um, you know, why, or that, that classic question, why weren't we told? I'm also, I think, very conscious of just how much has changed since, say, the bicentenary of 1988, where I think there was a genuine puzzlement among many settler Australians about, you know, why celebration of a nation was such an offensive kind of slogan for, for Indigenous people, whereas I, I think, you know, 30-odd years on or 35 years on, we've, we've, we've moved a very long way, actually, from that way of thinking about the big stories of our past. And partly that's a product of, you know, of the work that's been done, you know, the stories have been told, you know, that, um, but it's also partly a, a, a consequence of, of having such a large immigrant population. You know, the people, you know, the, the growth rate of the Australian population over the last 25 years is has been extraordinary. You know, it's been the fastest growing OECD country except for Singapore, I think. You know, it's just, I mean, it is remarkable what's happened. You know, the population's more than doubled in a you know very short period of time. So what you one of the, so that means that people come both with not a lot of knowledge necessarily, but also not with the embedded stuff. You know, like if you've got an old Australian, it's got an embedded memory of seeing you know, the consequences of Aboriginal dispossession, you know, of shanty towns and, you know, people, you know, really in dire straits. You know, that was in your your lived memory, you know, which growing up in country, you know, Victoria or whatever you would have. If that's not there, you're able to actually in a way accept stuff in a way because you don't have quite so much sort of, you know, emotional embeddedness in it. So I think that that's, that's really um, that's a really important, you know, sort of change. So, you know, it's grabbing hold of that. That's um, that's the crucial, you know, the crucial thing. Uh, again, so many thoughts, and I think it's interesting going back to your comments about the local. You know, the local is is one of the ways we can spiral out and picking the eyes out of where we do have probably pretty strong consensus on identity. And I think one of the things that fascinated me, like, it was a tiny sentence, Frank, in your book about. Um, the phrase democracy sausage only appearing in 2012, I think. Whereas, you know, for me, democracy sausage is a word that everyone uses. It's a phrase that we, we talk about all the time. And I think it's interesting that, that, you know, that those two words have come to give a bit of a shared sense of it, it, it brings in that identity of like political engagement and doing your duty, but it also kind of conjures up the image of community barbecue, weighing in line in your thongs, the local school. And I, I think, you know, that was one thing that struck me in all these conversations that maybe that's one of the starting points that perhaps marries a few different types of both the political identity and the kind of cultural or elements of the cultural identity. But I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I think, Millie, that's that's right. I mean, it's, it's a telling term. It, it is only about a decade old. It, it, um, and yes, it does seem to have been around for much longer, I agree. Um, I, I was interested in what it, it says and what perhaps it doesn't say about our political culture. Um, it, it, I think, evokes a kind of casual sense of citizenship, citizenship that sort of is at the margins of people's lives, but which still matters and, and is still meaningful. Um, that you know, perhaps um, sitting 
uh, and uh, selling sausages to, to raise money for the local school on the occasion of an election day is, you know, a more meaningful sense of civic uh, belonging or a more meaningful sense of of uh, civic duty than perhaps belonging to a political party, or at least it, it sets it beside those people who are there handing out how to vote cards as at least equally legitimate as, as an activity on election day. And I think that speaks to our ambivalence about, about politics as a source of identity, um, that, that we're not completely comfortable with the idea of, of you know, political life and the contention of political life being at the heart of our selfhood as 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 a country, and and I think the democracy sausage idea comes to some extent out of that ambivalence that we know it's essential, we know that it's it's um, for the common good that our governments um, and our parliaments do reflect the broad opinion of society, and and that we achieve that through. Uh, relatively unusual uh, instruments such as compulsory voting, um, you know. So we we recognise that that we have to have that. That's a kind of practical recognition. It's a part of that utilitarian aspect of our political culture. And yet, at the same time, we're also ambivalent about exercising those rights in a in a, a kind of conspicuous way. We're a little embarrassed, perhaps, about being a political. Um, uh, individual, being a political person, which we all become. Um, we're, well, we're, we're political people in a range of contexts, of course. But I, I guess it's on it's, it's on election day when we go and we register. You know who who we want to actually be there in our parliament, who we want to be there in our government. That it's brought home to us that that there is no escaping politics. That it is an, a kind of essential part of our being. And I think that that ambivalence um, is one of the things that's, that's, things that's given rise to the democracy sausage as a kind of symbol, really, of, of our, our, um, our civic belonging and, and our political life. Yeah, I think that there's a real, um, I think Australians have a real pride in the electoral system as it works, you know, that there's compulsory voting, that it's, um, you know, that the process of, you know, electoral um, um, apportionment in terms of, you know, boundaries and so on is done in a fairly, you know, disinterested and apolitical manner. You know, you look at what happens in the United States, you look at what happens in many other countries, and people say, oh, actually, we've managed to get something right. Um, but one of the things that I think that comes through in, in both the books is that is that these things happen as a result of contest. And I, that's one of the things that I stays with me as really one of the really crucial things. You know, if you're evolving these things, you've got to have places where ideas can be contested. Now, to have a contest, you've in a way you've got to have a, a agreed starting point. That is, we're trying to make this this nation a better place. You know, that you know, if, if you use that as a starting point, then you can have a sort of civilized and robust discussion. But if you don't have that agreement to begin with, if you say, oh, the idea of a nation is old-fashioned, oh, we don't know, we're just all citizens of the world, you know, oh, don't worry. Or as former Prime Minister John Howard used to say, people are sick of the endless seminar on Australian identity. Well, they might have been sick of, of some of it and some people might have been sick of it. But what happened in that vacuum of a, and I'm not talking about having a sort of formal government-led discussion, but, but just having the openness where it's possible to hear competing views being discussed and, and, and debated, because that public space got stripped out during the sort of the culture wars years where, you know, if somebody put their head above the parapet and said something which was, was opposed by the, the powers that be, they got 
beaten up, you know, essentially. And so the lesson was to be quiet. Um, what happened in that in that in that that silence that was created, you know, this post um, the 2000 Olympics, um, you know, high point, was that the, the discussions got pushed back around kitchen tables. They got pushed back into community groups. They got pushed back into online forums. Scholars went back into their studies and started doing the sort of the real breakthrough original research that actually revealed many more of these layers because, in a way, the, the space for having that shared discussion was actually much, you know, it wasn't robust. And so I'm just hoping that what we get in this sort of a Uru process, you know, we stop focusing on whether they're going to have the right mechanism, whether they are going to do what we think they should be doing. And we address back what we as a total society are actually able to engage with. That seems to me to be a really good place where these big national conversations can occur because it's not about us passing judgment on First Nations people choosing how they want to be heard. It's about us recognising that there is a flaw in the foundation of the nation. And until that's addressed, we can't go on to actually, you know, think about the bigger things. You know, what are the other things we might like to change if we can change this, this, this fundamental issue? And I think that's such a good point as well because we could so easily segment off that Uluru process as, you know, well, that, that's a First Nations issue that we participate in rather than saying this is an issue about the nation. What does it open up for future possibility? Like I think, I think that's a really important subtle reframing and that, you know, yeah, that we have really stepped back from being able to, from being confident to talk about national identity because of, as you say, it, it, we sort of worry about what that means and, it is easier to talk about global citizens because that's, that's sort of nice. Um, Frank, you're nodding away there. Yeah. I, I um, can't tell if you're about to say something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And it's interesting that the Republican issue now is seen, I think, quite rightly to be utterly entangled in the whole issue of, of the Uluru Statement and the issues raised by the Uluru Statement, the idea of having a republic the idea of, of, you know, considering that issue somehow separately from uh, the, the, the whole issue of Indigenous recognition, um, I think is now kind of outside the political process. I don't, I don't think that's taken seriously by anyone. That's, again, very different situation from 20 years ago when we had, you know, a Republican debate in the 1990s and we had, uh, um, you know, a referendum in, in 1999 um, the issue of Aboriginal reconciliation in that period was seen to be running, I think, broadly along, a, you know, a kind of separate track. It wasn't really seen by most Republicans as bearing directly on, on the issue of an Australian Republic. But, you know, the, the, the change climate around that, I think, um, tells us a great deal, actually, about how we've changed as a society across those, well, it's getting towards a quarter of a century. Mm. So I would love to keep talking to you both for another hour and we could be in the same space and have a coffee because I think these are conversations, these are ideas that Australia Remade has been grappling with for a long time and the people we work with. Um, before, we, before we wrap up, I just like maybe just in a, a quick sentence or two, but for everyone listening, like both of you, I have so much respect for the way that you tell the national story, for the questions that you raise and for the, the way that you both convince me in your books that this is important. Um, so really briefly, like why is nationhood and national identity and, and history, Australian history, why is it important now? 
Um, and Julianne, I'll, I'll chuck it to you first. Um, well, I think that, you know, that that's the organising principle that is the world in which we live. So, you know, that's what we've got. We've got a nation which is a continent um, and so we have uh, and we have an ancient history of human settlement of and people who have who carry that tradition, you know, and culture alive. So that's a really unique starting point. Um, I want to go back to one of the Federation things, and, and this was the sort of um, line that was used, and it didn't last very long, but it was a line that was used as sort of promotional stuff for Federation. Ours is not a Federation of fear, but the wise, solemn, rational Federation of a free people. Such a Federation as ours has only become possible through the advance of intelligence and the development of a higher system of morality than the world ever saw before. Now, it actually came possible because of the dispossession of First Nations people as well, which you know, was a convenient thing to ignore. But but I love that notion of a federation is not a federation of fear. And I think in Frank's, you know, schemas and dreamers, that the use of fear to stop people being dreaming and, and trying to imagine something else has been a political tool that's been used very powerfully in this society. And we have to actually be a bit bolder and a bit braver and a bit less fearful, you know, and say, actually, we can make this ourselves. So that's that's what I want to see coming out of this, because I actually think that what you when you do that, what you see is that the good, you know, there's a lot of nasty stuff, but the good rises to the top. The impulse is that people are looking for something that gives them a sense of belonging, connection, and that achieves its full potential. I mean, everyone knows that this country is extraordinarily gifted to not use that um, in a positive way is just, you know, it's a dereliction of responsibility, you know, for generations to come. And so that's that's why I think it's important. Yeah, that's a rousing call. I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Frank, just quickly. Yes, well, I endorse it too. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm struck by the adaptability of our political system over a very long period of time. I mean, it... it uh, doesn't work as well for some uh, as it does for others. Uh, it, it uh, you know, has often reinforced inequalities, but it also has, I think, quite persistently opened up spaces. And I, I'm the, the big question I ask in Dreamers and Schemers is, is, what have Australians demanded? What have Australians expected of their politics? And and um, what have they been able to get from it? And I think those questions remain really pressing for us today. I mean, are our institutions fit for purpose? Are the policies that we've pursued often over many decades fit for purpose? And I think the answer to that increasingly is that they're not. And I suppose, you know, the recent election in 20, May 2022 has opened up new possibilities for us. And I'm not thinking they're just a change of government. I'm also thinking more broadly of the ways in which the parliament looks different now. It looks more like Australian society. And I think that's to me is a really important development. Yeah, well, it's lovely to end on such a, a positive note. And just a huge thank you to you both. It's such a privilege and a joy to get to talk to you about these like really significant issues for how we go forward. So thank you very much. Thanks, Millie. Thanks, Gillian. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. 
We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 plus years as the oldest continuing civilization on Earth. I'm recording my part of our chat from Muinina country in Mutruwida, Tasmania. And I record from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. Our deepest respects to the elders and traditional custodians of these lands and waters. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of the incredible Anna Wilson, our producer. You can learn more about Australia Remade, sign up to get emails and join the community of remakers over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. And if you love the show, please rate and review on iTunes. If you want to send us your ideas or thoughts for future episodes or just share something that's on your mind, you can email us at podcast at australiaremade.org or give us a call. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for all that you do and for being part of this community. We'll see you next time.